This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello. Tonight's program is sponsored by the Carsey Wolf Center, which is UC Santa Barbara's Center for Media Studies. The center sponsors a wide range of academic programs, including conferences, publishing initiatives, and classes. Under normal circumstances, the center presents public events with academic and industry guests at the beautiful Pollock Theater. And recordings of those programs are available for streaming on the center's website and on UCTV. Tonight, however, I'm pleased to host the center's very first public, virtual public event. I want to thank Carsey Wolf Center Director Patrice Petro and her staff for their tremendous support for tonight's program. And I want to personally welcome all of you from around the world, from the East Coast of the US to viewers watching tonight in Brazil and Australia, for this important discussion about moviegoing in the age of COVID-19. I'm honored to be joined by New York Times film critic Manila Dargis and Art House Convergence Managing Director Allison Cosberg for a discussion about the future of moviegoing and how their work and how movie theaters have been affected by this ongoing crisis. Our time will be split between questions I have for both Manola and Allison, and then we'll take more questions from you, the audience. So if you have something you'd like to ask, please type it into the chat section of the Zoom webinar, and the CWC staff will be selecting questions to include in the second half of our session. So let's begin. Thank you both for joining me, and I'd like to begin with the inspiration for tonight began with you, Manola, and your March 19th essay in the New York Times titled, The Moviegoer, Our Critic Misses Sitting in the Dark with You. Can you tell us a bit about some of the theaters you visited when you were growing up and which ones you still visit and cherish today? How has the theatrical moviegoing experience shaped your life and career? Well, I think I, I started going to movies and that basically set the, the path for my, the rest of my life, honestly. It's, I, uh, I grew up in New York City. I uh, grew up in the, uh, was, you know, uh, really in the 70s for the most part. Um, and that's when I started going off to movies by myself. Uh, this is pre-helicopter parents. So mm -hmm. my folks would just give me money and I would go off to the two local theaters. There were two theaters within two blocks of where I lived, uh, St. Mark's Cinema and 2nd Avenue off of St. Mark's. I grew up in St. Mark's Place in the East Village um, and Theater 80. Um, uh, St. Mark's, when I was growing up, was... Um, uh, a second run theater, um, played adult movies. And my parents had no problem with me just going off and seeing whatever. And I was going off and th seeing things like Five Easy Pieces and Drive, Set and having really no idea what I was watching, but I, I loved to watch the movies. Um, and then Theater 80 was really for really old movies and musicals. I, so I saw a lot of Fred Astaire movie, Fred Astaire and Ginger Roger movies over and over again. Um, and, you know, I just liked watching movies and that was a continuum through, you know, through high school, college, grad, different graduate school, you know, uh, experiences. And, and in fact, after, when I was about to graduate from college, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I was like, what do I like doing? I like watching movies. <laughs> and, and that led me to NYU cinema studies. And so, you know, and then I met Ho Jim Hoberman, who invited me to write for The Voice and et cetera, et cetera. And here we are. Um, I'm still a moviegoer, um, and that, that piece that you mentioned um, really was inspired by a conversation I had with my husband um, the night uh, that Los Angeles announced that it was shutting down, including movie theaters, and I just had this kind of existential pang, um, and I said, you know, I, I can't go to the movies, but I'm a moviegoer, you know, I didn't even think about, like, the fact that I was a movie critic, it was that I'm a moviegoer. This is something I do, you know, um, and it's been very disruptive, of course, for every, you know, um, but, and it's weird because it's hard to talk about because you don't, you know, because of the casualties and people are suffering, it feels sometimes awkward to talk about something like the movies, but I believe that art is very important um, and it's part of what makes us human. Um, and that includes going to the movies and seeing all sorts of different kinds of movies. Um, and I still go to the movies. I only review off of the big screen. I don't review. I just wrote my first uh, review off of a DVD in the, in the 16 years that I've been at the Times um, because we are starting to review things. Um, but I found it very painful, kind of, you know, um, not because of the movie per se, but just because, you know, I like going to the movies. And my husband and I, I mean, we joke, we're movie sluts, we go to everything. So, you know, I'll say, do you want to go to a movie with me? And he'll say yes. And it doesn't matter if it's a, a press screening or if we're going off on the weekend or, 
you know, I've seen a movie I like very much and I want him to see it. So I'll go see it again. I, I see movies repeatedly. So that's a lot, but. No, I was going to ask you that question that you sort of followed up on already, which is how is this affecting your work as a critic? You know, are you, or how do you feel? Is there a really big difference between reviewing something you see on DVD versus something you see in a movie theater? How does it matter for you as a critic in terms of the experience and in terms of your own sense of the movie? I mean, experience is really key. And I think when we're talking, you know, because people say, well, what's the difference between the two things? And, you know, one of the things is that the movies in a way kind of hold you hostage. You know, you go to the movie theater. You, that sounds more negative than I wanted to. I, I need a better metaphor. But you go to the movie theater at, at, at a prescribed time. You have to sit there. You sit there in the dark. You, there's a kind of contractual agreement that you're engaging in. Um, social, you know, rules, you know, don't look at your phone, um, et cetera. And at home, you know, it just, TV is an appliance to me. It's kind of like the blender, you know, I get to use it. I turn on the coffee machine, I turn on the TV and it has this very, you know, kind of quotidian presence in my life that's very not special the way that going to the movies is. But it's also just how you, how you watch, you know, and how you can pause. You can't do that in a movie theater, you know, and that, that is really important and that really dictates in a lot of ways than your kind of experience of the movie, which isn't to say I don't sit there and watch a movie for two hours, but the distraction of like pausing and going to the fridge or whatever, it's there. And it's, so it's a very different experience. And I, I've, you know, I've been watching movies on television since I was a child, but I just prefer going to the movies. Yeah, Allison, I wonder if I can ask you, you've had a, a tremendous career in exhibition, and I'm wondering if you could just sort of tell people, for those who don't know, what it's like to actually manage a cinema. You know, we don't usually think about the mechanics and the personalities involved in putting on a show, but so I'm wondering if you could just tell people what it's really like behind the scenes and what you wish people knew about film exhibition. Oh, well, I think it's wonderful behind the scenes. I think there's nothing like working in a movie theater. Um, to Manola's point, I love being a captive viewer. I love being in the space where you can watch a movie and you're licensed to do nothing else but watch it and your phone is off. So whoever contacted you, it doesn't matter because you're there. And I think, you know, the first movie theater I worked at full-time was the Brattle in Cambridge. And the idea that I could go down every day after work and watch a film was so exciting. And it's as exciting, it's as exciting as it was the first day. It's an amazing thing. I think there's kind of two pieces of knowledge that people don't know, depending on what their relationship to theaters are. So for the entertainment industry, big picture studios, I think that it's possible to drift away from how individual the theatrical experience is. So people might think about, in some industry coverage, kind of thinks about theaters as receptacle for content and for creative decisions that are made elsewhere. Films are made, they're distributed, and theaters are where they end up. And they overlook that theaters really, and particularly independent theaters, which are the kinds of theaters I work with, have really specific personalities, as you said. Um, they often have full-time programmers on staff and they're working really hard to tailor their presentation to their audience and communities. So it's actually a very individual, special experience and films might be framed within the context of larger retrospectives. They might be paired with local content. They might be tied to engagement with local filmmakers. So I think that that's really important to know that theaters aren't just spaces, they're really nuanced, special communities and kind of entities. And then on the other side, I think what moviegoers sometimes don't know is our different parts of the exhibitor kind of theater relationship. So for example, that's, you know, within the sort of world of film distribution, sometimes there are limitations that would prevent two theaters that are near each other from screening the same film. Sometimes people don't know the percentage of film grosses that go back to the distributor. So I feel like depending on your relationship to movies and movie going, there's two different bodies of knowledge that you might be invested in. That of the industry big picture or that of the regular moviegoer that is familiar with your local cinema. So I'm wondering if you could tell us as your role as a managing director now at Art House Convergence, if you could tell us A, about the Art House Convergence and B, about the new Art House America campaign and how it's helping cinemas during the pandemic. So Art House Convergence is a nonprofit organization that shares resources, educational opportunities, and networking opportunities with art houses and independent cinemas around North America and particularly in the United States. So we have conferences and events. We have a website where we share open resources. Anyone can access them. Right now we're hosting two webinars a week. 
And more recently, we've been helping administrate a fundraising campaign launched by the Criterion Collection and Janus Films called the Art House America Campaign, which is a fundraising initiative that is giving emergency grants to independent and art house theaters that have been temporarily closed because of COVID. And it's been really amazing and inspiring to see so over 5,000 donors come forward and make contributions and then leave their notes about why they love movie going. And then in the inverse, it's been really amazing to see all of the theaters that have received funding send notes and share their stories, be it that it was actually a Janus screening that had inspired them to become interested in cinema and took that knowledge back to their hometown and open a theater, or how visible it makes them feel to be a venue in North Dakota and have people in Los Angeles and New York donating to a campaign that helps them keep their doors open. So it's really incredible. It's still going on. Um, I encourage people, anyone who can, and I recognize these are really financially hard times to donate just the price of a movie ticket and support the campaign and also engage with their local cinema that they love. So, yeah, Manola, if I could ask you a question just about following up on both of these, which is that what do you think is going to happen over the next year in terms of film production, in terms of the quantity and even the quality of the films that were going to be released for critical review? Because, as you know, the Academy just updated its qualification standards for the Oscars, and many are talking already about smaller crews, physical distancing in terms of filmmaking. And I'm just curious if you think there'll be more visual effects, animation, small budget filmmaking, or do you think this is all just going to sort of consolidate Hollywood's you know, major film and streaming companies even more. Let me just get my uh, my crystal ball for <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, I can. My guess is as good as yours. I'm reading the same articles, the same interviews. Um, I think, honestly, I don't think any of us know right now. Um, I, you know, certainly we understand. I forget which filmmakers have had this proposal about what you know. It, when and when production starts again, how would you be able to do? I mean, one of the most interesting articles I read recently was about how absolutely filthy uh, uh, sets are, filmmaking sets are, and like really, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've been on a certain number of sets, but you know, people are rushing, and it's all about you know money, 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 and seventeen hours working steadily, and about you know just kind of basic things like cleanliness. So that's really curious. Um, in terms of, of the movies that we're seeing right now, what's happening, of course, as you know, and I don't know if everyone else says, is the, 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 the remaining big studios, there aren't that many, are, are really kind of holding off for the most part, not entirely, their bigger titles and postponing them. But what we've had are the, the smaller distributors, you know, great distributors, you know, Pino Lorber, et cetera, uh, releasing um, smaller movies um, that they would have done anyway, but bypassing, of course, theatrical. Um, I don't know what the numbers are like that. I mean, we've heard from Universal that their Trolls movie, which I will never, ever, ever see, uh, did very well, apparently. But that's a Universal movie, right? Um, I, I, I Honestly, I think it's too soon to know. I think we're really... I, I mean, I could just kind of, you know, spin some nonsense to be interesting, <laughs> but I, I honestly have no idea. And... We are also all creatures of habit, and I can just see kind of reverting back to like what we know. I mean, one of the things about movies is that there have been all these shifts and changes, but you know, kind of fundamentally, it's been kind of chugging along in a totality pretty much the same way for a very long time. So, I mean, the question is can something, you know, can a studio like Paramount survive this? Paramount was already in terrible shape. You know, I would sit there and pray for it to, you know, <laughs> not die. Um, and, you know, it's been all about Netflix. But the question is, you know, are they robust enough to sustain that? Um, and then, you know, they, so much of their money is just in the big blockbusters. Will they shift their kind of business model? I, I literally have no idea. I wish that I did. I'd make some money probably more than that. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, because you make me think of what's going on right now. There's a dispute, obviously, between AMC and Regal and Universal. Very public spat that's yeah. rather unprecedented in which AMC and Regal have pledged not to show any films from Universal. And one of the things that is making me wonder, Allison, I, I think you're seeing very different response on the part of the independent distributors with independent theaters. There seems to be much more, a little bit, if I'm correct, slightly more collegiality between art house distribution and art house exhibition and understanding the ecosystem. Is that what you're finding in your, in your role? Yeah. And I think part of it is these are much smaller organizations. So when you're talking about 
Kino, which Manola mentioned, you know those individuals and they often have long-standing relationships with exhibitors. So that dialogue continues into temporary closure. So the kinds of collaborations that existed between those distributors and exhibitors have extended into this kind of new formula called virtual cinema, which is a kind of, a kind of exhibitor driven, so driven by traditional theaters kind of transactional VOD. So theaters sell tickets to independent film titles and patrons buy them as a way to support their local theater. It's sort of a temporary engagement model formulated within COVID, but you do see exhibitors working with theaters in that way to kind of sustain them, to continue the collaboration, and also as a recognition that independent theaters have really robust audience relationships, so might be able to market a small title in a way that's actually really impactful. And that's very, very different than what Universal did with Trolls 2. Um, something that hasn't been addressed at all within all the coverage of what's happening at Universal and with AMC is what's the kind of future of the subsidiary focus features. That's something I'm very curious about because focus theatrical is a huge part of the independent film ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and I was going to ask you if you know um, from talking to theaters and owners, what are they telling you about kind of what they're thinking about their own futures and their future concerns? Obviously a few cinemas have already said they can't reopen after this is over. Do you expect them to reopen anytime soon? I mean, we were talking previously about state by state. What kind of changes do you think they're going to make? I mean, this is also, I know this is, we're in the prognostication moment, so I apologize again, but questions about logistics, operations, safety. What are you hearing from the operators and exhibitors that you speak to about what they're planning to do and when are they planning to do it? So this is an instance, and this is kind of very strange because the film industry is national and it's inter international, but films get a national release. So what does that mean when what we're seeing is that state by state regulations are completely different and Los Angeles and New York, which are two really important hubs and driving forces in the film industry might be the slowest to reopen. So what does that mean for the state of kind of national distribution remains a big question. It seems like from what I've heard, and like Manola, I have no crystal ball, but so far, um, the first kind of big release date is July 17th for Tenet, if they hold that date. Until then, some theaters might be exploring repertory, but this is not a situation, and I said this to you, Ross, where anyone is rushing to be in the front of the line. Every theater I'm talking to is incredibly concerned about the health and safety of their community, of their audience, and of their staff. So while there is a lot of exploration of what safe and socially distanced movie going looks like, um, I also think theaters are exercising a good deal of caution and taking their time to reopen, certainly the theaters that I'm in conversation with. So I would expect a lag between when governors in some states say that theaters can reopen and when those theaters do reopen. And when they do, it will likely be socially distanced movie going. So seating every other row, um, six, you know, a certain number of seats apart, could be equivalent to six feet between different households, masks at concessions um, that you could hypothetically take off once you're in the theater, and then staggered screenings. So fewer screenings, so the lobby is less crowded, um, and those screenings being made lower capacity. But everyone I'm talking to is being really, really careful. So no one is rushing in. Can I just ask, this might be incredibly impolitic, does anyone actually, so Tenant is the new Christopher Nolan movie and it's being brought out by Warner Brothers. And you just, you know, mentioned it, Allison. Um, does anyone actually believe that that movie is going to be opening uh, across the country, across the United States in July? Because, you know, I don't believe it at all. <laughs> at all. I mean, I think it's interesting that Warner Brothers is insisting that they're doing it, you know. I, I'm, I'm, curious about that. I mean, I think that it's sort of a question of who goes first. Yeah. Um, and, and the question is, will there be enough lead time between now and then to have worked out all the kinks to have tried it on, you know, repertory films or anything else that the theaters think that are going to be, um, that will work just to get audiences in and test things out and demonstrate that there's a safety and security to the theater. But that, that would happen by the time Tenet comes out and that Warner Brothers would want to take the, the risk yeah. on, on a movie like that, that everyone's going to feel that way, I think is a question mark. Allison, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think the other question is, is if we're planning on reduced capacity continuing throughout the summer, is 
can theaters with fewer screenings at 25% capacity sustain a major blockbuster? So a soft reopen where you're maybe booking some repertory titles as a way to re-engage your patrons very carefully is one thing, but the expectations around a giant film like that and the amount of people you'd want to attend it during these conditions is tricky. The math supports Manola's, you know, skepticism. <laughs> the one thing I've heard, if you think about it, say there's no films, no new films have been shown by that time, you may have 12 screens that all can show one movie. So in a way you can physically distance the audience already, but this is, there's a lot of assumptions around all of this. I think, I love the wishful thinking. You know, I think we need optimism in this time period, but I think a healthy dose of skepticism is also, also well warranted. I'm curious if, the, if both of you have real existential questions about, and I know Allison, this is obviously something you don't want to answer given what, what, what you do, but existential questions about just, you know, the general state of movie going and specifically around generations that are not like you, Manola, who actually have not grown up with right. the movie going experience as the only way that they, that they um, experience film. Are there questions that you have or concerns that you have about the post pandemic or even the post return to movie going? I actually, there's two things. One, I actually think that people might be excited to go back to movies, um, including people who don't normally. Um, I was reading the most recent, it's part of my homework for this, uh, recent Art House Convergence uh, survey that they do every, they've done for the last, was it eight years? Uh, they do a survey of like who goes and what do they like and they break it down uh, by, uh, by age and gender and everything else. And uh, you know, I, I was just interested in it, but the fact that millennials still go to movies and have actually, I believe the survey said, have actually increased slightly is actually really interesting and a hopeful thing, you know, the, you know, hopeful sign. Um, I mean, certainly movie theaters survived the last pandemic um, and the last couple, I mean, they certainly survived the pandemic of a hundred years ago. So, you know, and nothing, they actually boom times afterwards. So I think that people are hungry to be with other people. I think that's something. And I think that they'll, I think they might return. I think one of the things I would really like to see when we go back is to kind of stop the steady drumbeat of theatrical being dead, you know, which is, is sometimes felt like a kind of almost a kind of wishful thinking on the, on the part of some industry people where you feel that there's a kind of, well, it's all over, everyone's streaming, everyone's just sitting home watching Netflix. And it's like, I'm sorry, do you see what Netflix has to offer? Not not a lot. I mean, I love watching Netflix for like British cop shows, you know, um, and it's great for that. But I, you know, in terms of movies, Netflix is, a, you know, it has nothing, very little to offer. Occasionally there's something, you know, but it's pretty slim pickings. So I would very much hope that that, kind of that drumbeat has, has subsided and we can kind of at least start talking about, as opposed to, you know, saying theatrical's dead, saying theatrical's still here. It is surviving and it is, it is coexisting with streaming and maybe in some cases might be weirdly complementary with streaming, you know? There's an argument to be made there. Carlson, you have thoughts? Um, it's interesting. I actually think of this moment for me, I mean, I already loved going to movies, but I actually think that people had taken theatrical and lots of other kinds of kind of public engagement really for granted. There was an NPR story early this year, pre-COVID, that was about, do we need restaurants anymore because Postmates exist? They could deliver food to your house. Why would you go out? And I think we see now and are really seeing that just because we can stream something at home and just because food can be brought to our house that isn't actually the equivalent to being with people in space. It almost feels like a fairy tale. You thought you wanted to just be at home with everything in your home, but actually you don't want that at all. Um, you want to be in spaces with other people, you know, too much of streaming media is not the equivalent to the theatrical experience. So I feel really optimistic that this is deepening the appreciation for all we were able to share in public. And I believe that the theatrical experience will be nimble and adapt to these conditions in the same way we've seen bookstores adapt, you know. Mm -hmm. Independent bookstores have really proven to be incredibly resilient during a lot of market consolidation. And I think independent theaters might prove to be the same way. But of course I have worries at this moment because we have thousands of cinema workers who are 
um, you know, have been laid off or furloughed. And this is a time of tremendous financial hardship, even as I remain optimistic about all the theatrical experience has to give us. Yeah, so pessimistic about the present tense, the present, but optimistic about the future. I, I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, I've never seen so much coverage of theatrical exhibition in my lifetime. Never. I mean, from every every area of the of, the, of journalism, whether it's, you know, magazines, TV networks, everyone's sort of interested. There was this whole boom of coverage of drive-ins. Suddenly drive-ins were getting this play everywhere you could think of, Washington Post, CNN. So it, it's an interesting moment. I think people are, are very excited about going back. The one thing that I'm, I'm anxious about is the return too quickly. Uh, you know, you may have seen that China tried that. And they immediately had to shut it down. And that gives people a sense that it's not safe. And so the, the, the managing that process, which NATO is trying to do very much, and others and Art House Convergence and others, I think is really, really important. Um, I want to take some questions from the from, from people who are writing in. One of the questions has been about film festivals and what's going to happen this year and maybe even to next year uh, with Cannes. We already saw the cancellation of Cannes and South by Southwest. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Cannes is not officially canceled. I, I find that hilarious, but it has not officially canceled. They are putting the market, which is, it's literally a market where you buy and sell movies. That is going online. But to my knowledge, and I've checked today, they have not officially canceled because Cannes. <laughs> right. So what do you think the, what do you think the future of, um, Film well, the, the immediate future, the next year of film festivals, if we aren't in a much more stable place, what do you think is going to happen to, because that's part of the ecosystem, especially with the independent cinema, independent films, is, is the festival market. So what do you think is going to happen um, with that situation? Well, right now, I mean, right, I, I go to like about six festivals a year, um, four to six a year. And I go to the big ones, um, which are, you know, Arcan, uh, Sundance and Toronto are like my main ones. And then I go to a couple of New York ones, so actually five. Um, right now for obviously until we, you know, until either the virus kind of peters out the way it did a hundred years ago, until we actually have some sort of like protection, I think we, we're not gonna have film festivals. And then I think we will have film festivals. Film festivals are very important. They're really important to kind of non-industrial cinema, meaning non-Hollywood, you know, big cinema, non-troll cinema. Um, and there's something very profound about that. I was just speaking to someone who works at a movie company and we were just talking about like what it means to be in a room with a lot of other, you know, people all excited seeing a movie for the first time. Um, and I just don't see that, I don't see that really, I think we will anxiously go back to that just as we will go back to movie theaters. Down the line though, not right away. Down the line, yeah. Alison, you may thought on festivals or that whole uh, segment? I completely agree with what Manola said. And I mean, I think another factor that throws a wrench into the next festival years. As you said, this has been a very challenging time for production. A lot of production is paused and a lot of films were accepted into film festivals last year and then didn't get to exhibit. So the kind of production pipeline is in a very unusual state. I think that film festivals, particularly the film festivals Manola mentioned, which are large international film festivals that draw people from all over the world. Um, this is a challenging time. These they're you know, crowded events and crowded parties and crowded screenings. And I think it might be more challenging than a kind of regional theater to bring back a festival of that scale. Um, you might see them operate in different ways, more local ways. But I do think that regardless of what happens right now, festivals will return and are really, really important to, especially critically, allowing independent films to establish their audience and make connections and then reach theaters subsequently. So this is a question about demographics. I mean, one of the things that's concerning, I think, if you think about the, you know, I think it's fair to say that art house theaters sometimes have a slightly older demographics. They can in certain markets for sure, and it can be a mainstay. That's the one of the main uh, demographic groups that's most concerned about COVID-19. So I'm just curious if you're talking to Allison and certainly Manola, if you have thoughts on this, the whole, the sort of collision of those two things where you have the group that wants to go back the most is the group that might be one of the most impacted by, um, by exposure um, to any, any COVID-19? Um, yeah, that is absolutely coming up. And it's also the group that's most impacted perhaps by um, 
or one of the groups. And there are, there are a number of groups that have been very impacted by COVID because we also see racial and economic discrepancies around the impact as well as um, people with pre-existing conditions and older people being more vulnerable. But then we also have um, uneven access to kind of technology and virtual technologies and the kinds of infrastructure you might use for stay-at-home entertainment. So I think as you were saying, people who might be most eager to come back are feeling vulnerable and might also not have the same home entertainment infrastructure. Um, there is a lot of sensitivity to that in conversations about that, particularly in independent theaters where your patrons are not um, just kind of a financial proposition. They're actually people you know and who you really care about um, and want to keep safe. So that certainly is coming up. Yeah. Yeah, and I, Manola, I'm just curious. So you, you were talking about the theaters you went to when you were younger. I'm curious about the theaters you go to now because it's about this conversation about programming with something that Allison was talking about before, the way in which you kind of have a kind of a brand loyalty or a kind of programmer loyalty to certain cinemas. I mean, are there cinemas that you you just sort of think about, even when you're not reviewing a film, there's just theaters that you you, you kind of trust what they're going to do or you trust, even if it's a film you haven't heard of, you trust what they, what they program or that that's part of what makes you go to them. Um, I don't know. I feel very, I go to, like, if it's playing the movie I want at the time I want, I will go there. I'm really, I get in my car and I drive. I'm really good. I, you know, I, I will drive an hour to go see a movie. I have driven several hours to see a movie if I've had to do that. Um, so, I mean, I live on the east side of Los Angeles. I love the Vista. You know, it's a sing, big single screen. It's, it's just great. I love it. I love going there. I love the arc light, you know, it's ridiculously expensive, but I really like it. Um, I like the quality of, of, of the, um, the screening experience, you know, um, but I really like the landmark, you know, I, I will drive across town to see that. Um, you know, I have all my favorite rooms across town, uh, rooms that I can't stand. I don't want to mention the ones I don't like. Um, I love the new art and I wish that I lived closer because I just, I love, you know, I really like the people who run it. I really like the theater. I love that big room. Um, you know, I really like the Royal. I'm sorry that they 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 broke it up into smaller theaters, but the big room, the big room that they still have is pretty big still. So, you know, I, I basically, I will drive to your movie, you know, <laughs> whether for work or for pleasure. So, yeah. You know, of course, I don't want to forget like the American Cinematheque, which I also love, so. Yeah, I'm just curious because in thinking about this, do you think that there were things that you hadn't thought about, both of you had not thought about before this crisis started that might impact movie going, I hate to say it, but for the better? Are there things that might be productive out of the crisis that could that we might have more attention? Allison, you were mentioning on, on vulnerable communities. Are there, are there anything out of this crisis that we might make movie going better or more, um, more possible for different audiences out there? I have a thought. <laughs> I think we should stop complaining about other people so much. I was just talking about this before we went live where, you know, there was so much this kind of, as I mentioned before, this drumbeat against theatrical and theatrical's dead or it's dying. And, and a lot of times, you know, people are complaining, people, and I get tweeted at and people email me that other people are annoying. And I'm like, in what part of your life are other people not annoying? <laughs> other people are annoying in every part of your life. So, you know, in your house, they're annoying. Outside your house, they're annoying. In the grocery store, they're annoying. Why wouldn't they be annoying in the theater? Big deal, you know? Yes, it's annoying. I, like, move. If I feel safe, I'll ask someone to cover their phone at least. Um, but people have always been annoying. So I just, I find it kind of, I would like a little bit more generosity uh, to the fact that we're all human beings and sometimes we're going to eat our popcorn a little bit loudly. I've had people like sigh at me because I guess I was digging a little too <laughs> lustily into my popcorn, you know, I, it's just kind of silly. Some of it. Yeah. Well, you, you made me think of the, the real crisis of popcorn, which is that you, know, you have gloves and then you have masks. It's crisis, right. Yeah, it's like there's popcorn. It's a very difficult thing under COVID-19, but um, yeah. Allison, do you also, do you see anything that might be positive that could come out of all this in terms of movie going? I am hopeful that this deepens people's appreciation for how meaningful it is to share space, for how beautiful it is to see films on the big screen. I think one thing that's been really clear for independent theaters is that it's really their most kind of loyal audience members that are really sustaining them, that this is truly a business of relationships and about people. 
and that investing in those people causes them to invest in you. So I feel like that, I hope that spirit and that lesson is really internalized to everything we do next. You know, one thing I've been thinking about is whether or not we're going to have a revival of, of classics in movie theaters. I mean, already, if you look at the, the Mission Tiki out here near Los Angeles, was playing a double bill of Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, because, again, there's a lack of new content. And we've been talking about the, the time between now and Tenant or the time between now and Wonder Woman. You know, I'm curious if, if, if studios are holding content and theaters want to reopen, what are they going to show? And, and it's, that's one question and the question about um, world cinema, because there may be other markets in which films are being distributed. So will there be an opportunity maybe for either repertory content or even global content to end up on, um, on traditionally American movie theater screens? That would be great. Uh, no, the return of the, of the actual real revival house would be awfully cool. I mean, it's funny. I've been, um, because we, I have only reviewed one movie, new movie in the last couple of months. And so I've been writing a lot about older movies, but I've been, when you were like classics, I, you know, I, I'm like, I've been watching 1930s movies, 1940s movies, 1950s movies. Um, I just wrote about a 1944 short movie that I love, you know, so um, I would very much like to see that. And I, it would be nice to think that there would be more kind of diversity. I mean, it's, it's just... It is, there's not a lot of diversity. And I'm just talking about diversity of what we can see, you know, the multiplex that you go to that has 16 screens and 14 of those screens are playing the same thing. And it's not diversity in any way. And so the big studios have monopolized the screens. And where you really do get a kind of diversity of, of cinema are, are the independents, you know? And it would be nice to think that people would, if they don't have the big movies that are all like, that they could start, like maybe they'll be interested in these smaller movies that they're watching in the virtual theaters. And maybe that will be inspiring, you know, inspire them to later on be go out of the house and go visit Metrograph in New York city or the new art in Los Angeles. You know, that would be great. A little bit more adventurousness would be really nice. Yeah. Allison, are you hearing anything about what independent art houses are going to do if there isn't enough content when they first reopen? So I do, well, I want to start by saying, I do think we're entering an adventurous period for drive-ins. Like this is going to be, and I love to go to the drive-in. So I think this is going to be interesting and weird in that they traditionally play films that are in the widest release, very, very mainstream content. And as you said, prior to those films being available, you do see drive-ins playing repertory titles, but for the first time in my recent memory, playing independent film, which I think is actually going to increase. So I think an IFC Films title was playing at the Montclair Mission Tiki Drive-In um, east of Los Angeles. So I think that's going to be an interesting time at drive-ins. Things are going to get wild and interesting, which I'm very excited about. I think art house cinemas, which tend, have tended to have more robust revival and global cinema programming anyway, um, if they have a period of regularly programming before there are new releases, I think we'll be able to really embrace the part of that yeah, part of their programming. Some of them are twins and some of them are single screens. So if they're booking, what for an art house is a big film, a focus features film, a Fox or Play film, they're often required to um, what's called play them clean. So give them four shows a day on that screen. So that often inhibits them from bringing in more repertory titles and things like that. So this might be a time of really letting their programmer have a lot more liberties to play whatever they're excited about. So that could be interesting, though I think theaters are going to be slow to take on a full programming load. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking earlier about the virtual screenings. Can you explain what those are? Because, I mean, people have seen, probably have seen some of that uh, being talked about in the press and maybe as some fundraisers, but can you talk about how virtual screenings work and and not just that, but also what moviegoers can do if they want to help their independent theater or even a, a larger theater a chain that might be struggling. What do people do right now to help movie theaters in need and is virtual screenings really the best model? So virtual screenings are a mode of transactional VOD. So it's a pay per screening model in which the revenue is split between the distributor and the exhibitor and the exhibitor, it, you purchase tickets through your exhibitor. So you go to the website of your local art house cinema, you see what they're playing, you know, Wild Goose Lake from Film Movement, Baccarat from Kino Lorber. You would buy a ticket and then you will get a link to watch it on your TV, your Roku, and watch it at home. But that ticket sale will benefit the theater, which is one way you can support your theater. And it's also a way you can continue to access kind of hand-picked art house content during temporary closure. It's 
it's a wonderful model to sustain engagement during temporary closure, but it's not equivalent to the theatrical experience. So do you think that this, the whole, um, the Academy's temporary uh, changes to requiring a theatrical run uh, of at least seven days, typically in Los Angeles, is it ha- going to have any impact this year? I mean, is it, they're talking obviously about just during this exact moment when theaters are closed. Do you think it's going to have any impact not only on obviously film exhibitors, but also Manola on just what you do? Will you see any impact from the changes of the Academy? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting because, you know, the Academy, which is both good and bad, a force for good and a force for bad. Um, the Academy had already allowed people, its own members to watch things at home. So I really don't see a very big difference in terms of like literally a lot of people who vote for the Oscars, you know, are watching, are not going to theaters. Um, I mean, so it's always been this kind of interesting thing where they demand a theatrical release for a movie to be eligible, which they've waived this year. And yet their own membership can just sit at home, not get in their car, not drive anywhere, which I've always thought was ridiculous. You know, I think people should get out, particularly because there are Academy screenings every year. There are just lots and lots of Academy screenings for the voting membership. As far as, you know, what it impacts for me, you know, I don't really have much to do with the Academy except to complain about it, you know, consistently and then, you know, watch the Oscars and hate watch the Oscars. So that's really my relationship with it. I mean, again, I love some of what the Academy does very much, you know, particularly on the uh, scholarship side and preservation side. Yay. Um, So I'm really curious. Are they just, are people just going to start releasing these really big, important movies um, all in November? Um, Are we presuming at that point that, you know, all of America will be open? I, again, I don't have that, that crystal ball of mine is shattered. I have no idea. Um, but I think it's, it seems very, I think what, one of the biggest problems is these movie companies have to figure out how to put a movie into the world. They have had a model of how to do that for decades and decades and decades. They know how to do that. They do it really well. And suddenly you're asking them to do something very different. You know, they have, there's a whole way that you put a movie into the world. If it's a smaller movie, you have the, the, the festival and you start to build world. I mean, Parasite is a perfect example of like how a movie is able to turn into a kind of, you know, um, a sensation. And it was very carefully, it was at Cannes, and then it went to the different other fall film festivals very slowly. When it finally opened in New York, it was at one theater, which created a complete hysteria. Everyone had to see it. I mean, it was milked. These smaller movies are kind of milked very slowly, build up to the old school kind of like rolling out a movie very slowly as opposed to what the big studios do, which is like, here's our big $200 million thing that might be good, it might be bad, but we're going to shove it in 3,000, you know, on 3,000 screens and they're going to make a lot of money that first weekend. That's not how most, a lot of the movies that we really care about, that's not how they work. So I don't see how you have an Oscar campaign or for a movie without that kind of slow nurturing that usually goes into it. And I'm sorry for being so long-winded. But no, that's great. Yeah. Allison, are you seeing anything about that? Um, I, this is an issue where I don't, I don't know. I will say that the theatrical releases of those really critically prestigious films um, that do kind of play at the fall festivals that are critical darlings that are often nominated for awards really drives the business of art house theaters. Um, so what the next year might look like, I can see that presenting certain challenges, but I similarly, I also just think on kind of a personal level as a viewer and as a person, it does those films a disservice for them not to be seen theatrically. Um, really beautiful films that I watched at home. It was not a comparable experience at all. So I also wonder what happens to a film like Parasite, which was one of my best film going experiences last year because I finally figured out how to buy in advance the right seat in the Cinerama Dome. It took decades, but I finally achieved my goal. But it was so gorgeous. And what would that have looked like at home on my TV? It wouldn't have been equivalent. So I think a lot of films that are beautifully shot um, and carefully designed might kind of be harmed by not having a theatrical release. 
I think that like a perfect example of that was Roma, you know, speaking of critical darlings, that Roma and the rollout for Roma and how that was handled. And that was really interesting because that was a Netflix release, but they did do a theatrical release because they're really hungry to win Oscars. Um, so they did this, you know, uh, expensive, very, you know, kind of careful, traditional release for that. But if you went on to, let's say, Instagram, and you looked at the comments about Roma for people who were just watching it cold on Netflix, people were like, this is the most boring movie I've ever seen, you know? And I thought, you know, if you're at home and you're just watching the first five minutes of Roma and it's someone cleaning some dog feces on a, you know, and you're not going to see the little plane going by, you know, I'm just saying, it's just very funny. And Parasite, this is, you know, Bong Joon-ho fills the screen with lots of interesting things that are easier to miss on your television. So I don't really know. These are movies that are not made. Um, I mean, I can't, you know, are we going to watch Christopher Nolan's movie on television? Eventually, but, you know, it's going to be with the knockoff like, like this. Seeing it. So, you know, one of the things that, that I'm, I'm a little concerned about, I think it's worth raising, is always like a third rail conversation, which is about price. Um, we already had an issue with with price because there are let's face it when minimum wage was you know six seven dollars for many people they were thinking how do I take a family of four and spend all the concessions now we have a really bad economy we have a lot of unemployment so I'm wondering if you think that there's something that someone has to to think about in terms of how to address this problem, uh, not just for art houses, but for, you know, mainstream multiplexes as well, that, you know, we already have areas of this country that are what we could almost call them cinema deserts, where within 30 miles, there isn't one movie theater. Mm -hmm. And that means you're missing a whole new generation uh, who might be interested in, in movies and movie going, but doesn't have that experience. And now you've got people who will probably financially not be able to return when those of us currently here will be able to go back. What do you think can happen on all sides? studios, theaters, what can be done about this new world we're going to enter into and some of the problems that are out there that we're not yet really thinking about? Jeez. Um, return of the second run theater? I don't know. I mean, there, what's in Pasadena, that second run? Um, the Academy Cinemas. It's still 350 a seat. I love it there. <laughs> I go there fairly frequently just because a movie is going to disappear and I want to see it on the screen. That's how I saw Hustlers, you know. Um, is I will go over to that and, you know, 350 that's, that's cheaper than a Starbucks coffee. That's a really great deal. Um, I can't really speak really, this is an Allison question because I can't really speak to the mo the financial model of that. So I, um, so a couple of things I do want to kind of honor and recognize that this is a time of tremendous financial hardship. So even very reasonably priced movie tickets might feel like a kind of excessive expense for a lot of people. And I want to be very sensitive to that. Um, I do also think there's a great, a pretty broad range of ticket pricing across the country. So even in the theaters, Manola mentioned in Los Angeles. So at the Academy, you have second run, it's 350. The Vista, I believe is still below $12 and what a gem is. Whereas at the Arclight tickets are coming in above 20. If you were to go to an IMAX movie to see something or see something in 3D, it might be coming in close to 30. So the range is actually still pretty broad. Um, and as you get into other parts of the country, um, the Midwest, the South, um, the ticket prices are quite different than they are in Los Angeles and New York. So I do think it's important to recognize that there's still a range out there. That's saying taking a family of four to a multiplex, particularly to see a Marvel movie in 3D is really expensive so what are what are are there any kind of um kind of promotions or big ideas that you're hearing out of your membership over at the art house convergence anything that you're hearing that that theaters are thinking of doing for the first time or for uh for something that they think that their members will really care about that their their patrons will, will care about is there any kind of new ideas that are being shared that sound kind of exciting that that you're you're interested in, in hearing more about after they reopen or after while they, closed? Yeah, no, after they reopen. Is there anything that they're thinking about already? I haven't heard yet kind of what people have in store when they fully reopen, but lots of people are experimenting around what to do in that kind of liminal period, be it a pop-up drive-in or other kinds of kind of in-between programming. A lot of theaters have been doing to-go concessions that have been pretty wildly successful and really charming. Oh. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's actually been an interesting, you've already seen that with uh, Evo and others where actually they're turning, the multiplexes are turning their parking lots already uh, into, uh, into drive-in theaters. So I, I keep wondering whether or not you think that there's going to be a revival of drive-ins. I mean, or, you know, there's already this kind of movement for rooftop cinemas, for public pop-ups, for, you know, uh, all kinds of parks and, and city-run uh, drive-in cinemas. But it, it does feel, if you think about it, as one of the most logistically reasonable social distancing possibilities because, you know, you're already within the car. And as you know, drive-ins are doing basically every other space, those that are still open. So it is a, it is a question mark, right, that that is a possible um, boom area, mini boom, uh, in, in, exhi in exhibition come, going forward, including drive-ins that have closed and drive-ins that have open space and drive-ins that still have screens. And, and also um, there's lots of portable equipments, LED, there's tons of technology and projection and otherwise it would make this possible. Um, I don't know, but uh, Manola, you seem like you might be a drive-in fan. No, I just would love it. I think it would be great. I think maybe also because I didn't grow up with drive-ins, so they're incredibly exotic to me, you know? So I, I would just, I would I would love it. I think it would be absolutely great. Um, you know, I mean, you'd be in your car, which we don't always love to be in, but, you know, to go see a movie, I would be very happy. I'd even clean my windshield, you know? It would be great. I really would love to see that, and that might be a kind of modest uh, kind of measure to before we can reopen that that would be actually quite wonderful. I hope it happens well we're 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 almost at the end. I'm wondering if there's anything that you want people to to take away with them from this or anything you want them to think about or anything that you want them to support when this is over because I think we've we've taken movie theaters for granted we've taken the movie going experience for granted. I think that's fair to say, and I think what comes out of what everything I've been reading over the last few weeks and certainly talking to you is that we have a lot of longing a lot of nostalgia and a lot of interest in going back. And I'm just, any final thoughts that you can share with everyone? Oh my goodness. Um, well, I think be optimistic. This is a really, really hard time. And I think, you know, we've had to kind of be very careful here about we're mourning something very specific in the face of a, a much larger global trauma. And, you know, as I said, it's, it's hard not to feel, you know, I don't, I hope that this has not seemed frivolous, um, but I do believe that art is extremely important for people, for human beings, and going to the movies is very important. Um, and really, again, going to the movies is about going to be with other people. You know, it's about to see the, the work of art, but it's also to be with other people and experience that together. And I think that there is, I think, been this kind of drift about, you know, yes, stay home with your phone, don't go to restaurants, stream everything. And what an impoverished existence that would be, you know? Um, it's certainly not the way that I want to live, and it's certainly not the way that anybody I know wants to really live. Um, I mean, if you're a shut-in and that's the only thing you can do, then I understand. But I think a lot of us right now understand that we just want to run out, hug everybody, <laughs> go look at art, you know, and experience the world the way that we've loved it, you know, at its best. Allison, I'll give you the last, uh, last thought. Um, I think this is really a time for us people to help each other and support each other and then just invest in the things that matter to them, be it the movies or otherwise. It's really a time to just rally around what you love and care for it and care for everyone around you because it is a time people really need each other. So I see that we're going to end with a tear. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually very misty-eyed by this, you know, because it's, you know, we all are committed to the same thing in terms of, you know, wanting us to all get past this and to, to be able to, you know, not give each other a virtual hug, but real one, you know. Well, I, I hope we can look back at this, uh, at this session and, and think about how, um, how hopeful we were and, and that we were right to be that way. And uh, I'm so grateful to the both of you for joining us. I'm so grateful for everyone to be here with us tonight. Um, hopefully you had a wonderful time as I did. So thank you so much. And uh, I hope to see you again very soon and at the movies. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.